turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. This is John Cass and Kristen McQuarrie filling in. We're both journalists at the Chicago Tribune. I read a column, and I'm on the editorial board, and Kristen was a columnist, and now she is going to be the new boss of the Chicago Tribune editorial board. We're the people who create stuff so that talk show hosts have something to talk about. That's right. What would, what would Dan Proft talk about if not for the Chicago Tribune and all the articles that we produce? Or mm. other newspapers. Yes, but to people who aren't familiar, John Cass is a syndicated columnist. He's someone you want to read. He is right-leaning, uh, conservative in a, a very blue city, a very blue state, as you know, Chicago. Um, later in the program, maybe we'll talk a little bit about Jussie Smollett, since that is making headlines um, not just around the country but around the world. And uh, just stick with us. We've got some great guests lined up tonight. And it's Valentine's. It's Valentine's Day. We're going to talk about that, too, John, because you had a column recently about your romantic um, proposal for your wife, what you 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 do on Valentine's Day. You know what I always say, Kristen? What? I'm just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her. Oh, so sweet. Do I sound like uh, Julia Roberts? Yes. Let's Let's drop in some romantic comedy lines throughout the show. But first we have Greg Orman. He's, this is an interesting thing to me. Greg Orman is part of a project called We Need Smith. More than ever, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. We need a guy like Smith, says Greg Orman. Greg? Hi. Good evening. So tell, us about, tell us about the We Need Smith project. I find well, it- actually, the We Need Smith project was something that was uh, really envisioned by a longtime pollster and political operative named Pat Cadell. The late Pat and, Cadell. And the late Pat Cadell. Pat, unfortunately, passed away just about a year ago now. And uh, Pat, for, for a number of decades, had been noticing a growing alienation between the American people uh, and the people that we elected to lead us in Washington, D.C. And so he started he started polling on this, and, and Pat really envisioned uh, this idea that if we could get a citizen-servant elect, uh, citizen-servant elected, loosely modeled uh, on the character that Jimmy Stewart played in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, uh, that we would go a long way towards bridging that alienation between between the American people and their elected leaders. And so he started polling on this uh, decades ago uh, and talking about it and writing about it. And, and of course, as uh, the years have passed, uh, Pat's uh, opinion on this, this alienation uh, has only been proven to be 
uh, factually true and, and evident in our day-to-day politics. Do you see anybody um, who actually embodies Mr. Smith? I mean, is there anyone in Congress or running for office or a, a governor across the country? Do you, do, do you see this like in the flesh? Is it real? Well, you know, importantly, Mr. Smith uh, is, is actually not a mister. We, we purposefully refer to the candidate as Candidate Smith uh, in the polling. So it could be a man or a woman. Uh, and Candidate Smith is a citizen servant, not someone who's been a career politician. And so I think it would be unlikely to find that person in the ranks of our current uh, elected officials. Uh, I think there are a a lot of people who obviously demonstrated uh, in the election in 2016 uh, that this system of government just isn't working for them. And they they reached out to candidates, uh, Donald Trump on the Republican side, Bernie Sanders on the Democratic side, uh, who you would consider to be very, very uh, anti-systemic, very unconventional candidates. Uh, And I think I think we are going to find the ranks of candidate Smith likely uh, in an unconventional spot uh, if we find the candidate at all. Well, you, to get a Mr. Smith or a Ms. Smith, I don't know. I, ju- I just picked two genders. I hope I'm not dating myself. To get either one, you need someone who is selfless, right? And I've only, been, I've only been covering politics for, I don't know, 6,000 years. And in my time, I've noticed I've seen a lot of reformers come and go. And... Uh, well, the one thing they can't uh, give up is humanity. And in, inside humanity, there's something called ego and pride and wanting to get money and wanting to have their kids taken care of. And eventually what you see is uh, the same kind of politics, which is the politics, the art of who gets what, how, why, and how much. And I don't see you, I don't see us picking someone like that, an idealized person, unless we come to grips with who we are as a culture and as a nation. We have to understand that first. I I wonder, is studying the Constitution, what are the organizing principles of this new world we're talking about in the Smith Project? We need Smith. In in terms of who candidate Smith is, which I think sort of helps describe those those organizing principles, candidate Smith is described to the voters as not conservative or liberal, but but rather someone who uses common sense to solve problems. Uh, candidate Smith uh, believes that we need to fundamentally fix our broken political system before we can start solving any. Uh, of our real significant issues as a nation, and and also believes that our our discourse has gotten off track and we need to be focused not on the past and litigating uh, the battles of the past, but ultimately on presenting a vision for the future uh, that that builds on what a great nation we have uh, today. And and so I but but I don't disagree with you at all, John, that that, you know, fundamentally what we have in Washington, D.C. today is is a bunch of people, many of many of whom this is the best job they're ever going to have. And, you know, when it's the best job you're ever going to have, uh, you're going to do anything in your power uh, to keep it. Uh, And I think, you know, we've seen that recently there's been a, a special on CNN, I believe, about. 
about George Washington. And, and you know, George Washington is, is that vision of that selfless leader that we need, someone who, who was really offered all the power and prestige in a, in a lifetime presidency and decided uh, instead uh, that, that the country was far more important than recreating a monarchy uh, like the one we had just fought to, to extract ourselves from. Uh, and so I, I do agree with you. We're going to need to find a candidate who is more interested in serving the public than serving their own needs. Uh, and, and that, you know, historically has, has been something we haven't found in the ranks of the folks uh, who have been seeking elective office. Where does where does Trump fit into this? Because you, you referenced earlier, uh, you know, the, the swamp and, and the voters and Trump voters being kind of rebellious at, at this broken system and elevating him into this office. And he does show streaks of being sort of that, you know, actual someone who can break up the swamp, break up the, the stranglehold. But then but he, but everything is so partisan, even though he doesn't really advance all of the principles of the Republican Party. We are more divided and it seems more um more vitriolic in our in our discourse than ever. So where does he fit into this idea of breaking up a broken system? Well, I think for a number of voters, uh, President Trump actually does fill that role. Uh, and and in fact, uh, I think for a number of voters, someone like Bernie Sanders uh, fills that role. But you hit on a, a sort of a critical issue, which is partisanship gets in the way of them being viewed universally as that candidate, and therefore they really don't have the mandate and the support that they need uh, to ultimately um, get the things done we need to get done and and have the kind of structural reforms we're going to need to change those uh, incentives so that we get better outcomes for the American people. Uh, it, it's interesting in the Smith work that we do, we define candidate Smith loosely in the terms that I described earlier, and Candidate Smith's approval rating is actually higher than Dwayne The Rock Johnson or Tom Hanks, uh, two beloved American actors. We then go through the process of explaining Candidate Smith's positions on a range of issues from national defense to budget deficit. Greg, before we get into that, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, We'll talk. We'll continue talking with Greg Orman. We need Smith, the project, and we'll also talk about organizing principles, what it means to be an American, to organize the people, because I think there's a document written hundreds of years ago that might help us. This is the Dan Prop Show. John Cass and Kristen McQuarrie filling in on Valentine's Day. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show mr orman you were at the break you were talking about what the candidates represent and what what do people look for in the idealized presidential candidate or leader. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Well, again, I think the most important uh, feature of Candidate Smith is that 
that that candidate has to be a citizen servant, someone who doesn't come from the ranks of, of a lifetime politician, uh, but rather uh, someone who ultimately wants to go to Washington, D.C. Uh, and serve the needs of the American people. And, and Kristen, Kristen made an interesting point prior to the break uh, when she mentioned that partisanship gets in the way. Uh, as, as I described earlier, after we take candidate Smith um, through the policy positions they have, uh, the voters actually like Smith even better than they did before. Uh, and that's highly uncommon in polling that you can take somebody through detailed policy prescriptions and get voters to say, I actually like this person more. And I don't think anybody actually believes that would happen if candidate Smith had a D or an R next to their name. Uh, because ultimately that label ends up turning off a, a third of all voters uh, immediately. Uh, and in fact, the other thing that we found in our, in our polling is that both Democrats and Republicans actually believe uh, we need a third party, and they would support one if they thought that party had a chance uh, of being successful. So it's, it's clear from our polling that while people may like certain candidates, ultimately they don't like our system, they don't believe the two-party system is serving the needs of the American people, and they're desperately looking for something different, which is why they say they would support a third party if they thought it had a chance for success, and I think also why they are so enamored by this candidate Smith in our polling, because the candidate is described as so very different uh, from the politicians and the leaders uh, who have been, in theory, serving us, but in reality, serving themselves uh, what, for the past several decades. What, the, what you haven't talked about, though, is the <clears throat> animosity, or maybe I, miss, I missed it, the animosity that many Americans have toward the government is based, I think, on the growing, ever-growing administrative state. Um, I know that some of the more right-wing people talk about it as the deep state, I talk about it as the administrative state, uh, the way Gorsuch and uh, and um, uh, Kavanaugh talk about it, and there, um, in my belief, the the reason they were truly truly hated, particularly Kavanaugh, and the reason why the Democrats went crazy, uh, wasn't just about abortion and and Me Too, it was about his. Uh, understanding of dismantling the administrative state, which which basically governs people. We don't even know them. They're, they're bureaucrats and they govern our, our lives. They write our laws. And people say, well, why are we doing this? Well, that's the law. But it's not. The Congress didn't pass the law. The administrative state passed the law. They wrote the regs. And uh, I don't see that. Is that reflected in the, any of the polling? Well, it's 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 absolutely reflected in the polling. And, you know, my background, I've actually been an entrepreneur my whole life. My father had a small furniture store his whole life. And and my father once said to me, you know, these regulations, any one of them are sort of like a bee sting. You can survive it. But the combined effect of it is like you're falling into a beehive. And, and I think we see that reflected in the survey. We did two things that, that reinforce uh, some of what you just said. One is uh, we looked at 
25 issues, and we asked the, the people in the survey, what is the most important issue? Government corruption and ethics was number one. A bigger issue than health care, bigger than Social Security and Medicare, uh, balancing the budget. It was the number one issue well, they must not uh, live in, in our survey. They must not live in Chicago then. Well, we talk about yeah. it a lot in Chicago and <laughs> Illinois, but we don't tend to um, follow our hearts um, when we get to the ballot box. Could could I ask you, since since you mentioned third-party candidacy and, and your polling has shown that there is a is um, an, an, an interest in that, um, our state, of course, in Illinois, makes it very, very difficult for, for independents to run Naturally, the parties want um, to protect them, protect themselves and their incumbents. What was your experience as an independent candidate in Kansas? We're talking to Greg Orman, who ran for U.S. Senate. Um, what was your experience in, in the middle of that tussle and trying to get on the ballot and trying to get attention from the media and trying to raise money? What can you tell us about that? Yeah, Kristen, those are all real, real issues. And I, I sort of refer to the collective effect of that as the gravitational pull that we place on independent candidates. Uh, and, and, you know, we sort of had to deal with them one at a time. We had to get technically 5,000 signatures to get on the ballot. In a place like Chicago, that may not seem like a lot, but the, the reality is Kansas is geographically very dispersed. And don't, so, don't you, you have you know, any all... cemeteries in Kansas that you can find voters? <laughs> Well, you know, they, they go through a pretty exhaustive process of checking it. And as you know, the Secretary of State uh, is a partisan and, and certainly wanted, wanted to keep me off the ballot. So we had to actually get about 12,000 signatures to get on the ballot just to make sure that when they went through it and disallowed certain ones for the wrong date or the, you know, you sign it Greg instead of Gregory. Um, and ultimately we had to do that. But once you break through that gravitational pull, uh, we actually found uh, that we did start getting a lot of attention from the media. And in Kansas, what, what, what ultimately ended up happening was we ended up moving into second place in the polling. And once you're viable, once you're sort of in second place, then voters uh, ultimately get to go to the ballot box and vote their preferences. But breaking through that gravitational pull is awfully difficult which is one of the reasons uh, some of the things that I spend a lot of time on today are reforms that you have to get done through citizen-driven initiatives because you're never going to get the consent of the victims. You're never going to get the legislature to say, oh, yeah, let's change the rules in a way uh, that eliminate our power. Um, yeah, and just so by, we're, we're by, going through. But, just by comparison to you, to your point about signatures, you have to get 25,000 signatures to be a, an independent candidate to run statewide in Illinois. But like you said, the population's different. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, and, and I agree. And there are places like Texas where you need over 60,000 uh, signatures to get on the ballot, but you have to get them after the primary and before a date in May, and they have to be from people who didn't vote in the primary. And so, you know, there are a lot of states that create really high hurdles I to independents getting on the ballot. Mr. Orman, and then you've got a I fundraising disadvantage when luck. you run for federal office. Mr. Orman, you know, good you, luck with the fundraising and the project. And I, I promise to help you. I would like to help you. I'd like to write columns about it in the Chicago Tribune once I get three or four more conservative originalist judges on the Supreme Court. We've been talking to Greg Orman. We need Smith. 
now more than ever. Thank you for being on the program with us today. Thanks for your time. That was Greg Orman. I'm John Cass. She's Kristen McQuarrie, editor soon to be of the Chicago Tribune's editorial page. We're filling in for Dan Prof on the Dan Prof Show on Valentine's Day. She blinded me with science. Listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. And now on the Dan Proft Show, John Cass and Kristen McQuarrie of the Chicago Tribune filling in for him on this lovely Valentine's Day, uh, where our next guest, I'm sure, is a romantic at heart. He runs Real Clear Politics, the co-founder and publisher, Real Clear Politics, Tom Bevan. Hey, Tom. Happy Valentine's Day. What are your plans, Tom? Before we get into politics, come on, tell us something really romantic that you're going to do with the wife tonight. <laughs> but keep it PG. Well, this is a family school, show. So it's, we're going to go see a, the new Sonic movie, I think. Oh. And that's the extent of our Valentine's Day plans. Yeah. Nice. You guys probably take up Pretty a whole, romantic. You probably take up a whole row at the movie theater, right? Uh, well, the older ones aren't going, but the three younger ones will be. Yeah, so not quite a row, maybe half. There's uh, nothing like Valentine's Day with the kids, and then later you can stay up and watch something uh, very romantic like uh, The Joker Alone or uh, <laughs> Manchester by the Sea like I did. Stupid oh, idiot. Man. I took Betty to see that. Real uplifting. I thought yeah. it was a love story. Anyway, speaking of love, Tom Bevan, your pot, your uh, website, Real Clear Politics, is a must-read for me every day after I read the Chicago Tribune's website, or maybe sometimes even before. I go to realclearpolitics.com. I look at the um, Real Clear averages. I look at the uh, stories. And what is going on today? Well, I wanted to ask Tom about... Um about Bloomberg. Please sort him out for us. He is he's launching this Bloomberg for Black America and yet stop and frisk is all over the headlines. That's going to be a really tough thing for him to overcome. Tell us what you're hearing about when he finally bursts onto the scene here and maybe he is in some places not certainly not in Illinois. What what should we expect? Yeah, well this is uh <clears throat> I think the jury's still out on Bloomberg because while he has gotten some lift in the national polls and we're seeing him coming up in the states, and certainly he could not have scripted this better for his his strategy, right, to have the debacle in Iowa and to have Biden fail so badly in the first two states. Um, that's exactly what he was hoping for to happen. Um, but we've never seen anything like this. I mean, we've never seen a candidate skip all of the early states. We've never seen a candidate dumping this much money into the process, um, you know, over $200 million. He says he's going to spend upwards of as much as $2 billion uh, of his own money to do this. And and at the same time, right, he has not had really – he hasn't had his time in the barrel at all with the media or even voters. Um, he's starting to get a little bit of that. We saw it with the stop and frisk stuff and the comments on redlining. And, again, these are not comments that were made – 40 years ago when he was a young man, these were made five years ago, seven years ago, nine years ago. Throw him up against the wall. The re- Throw him up against the wall and when, frisk him. Right, when he was the Republican mayor of New York City. Um, <laughs> and now he's 
a Democrat. So there, I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot more for this story to play out. There's a story uh, Jeff Zeleny was at his at his rally in Chattanooga, Tennessee yesterday, and said wrote the story said Bloomberg he's not taking any questions from voters, but he's giving out free food and T-shirts to to folks who come to his rally. So I, you know I, I'm not sure, and he's not the most charismatic candidate. Um, he's also now involved in. He's decided that he's going to trade insults with Donald Trump, which if you've followed anything about Trump over the last three years, you know that anybody who, who tries to do that has failed thus far. Now, maybe Bloomberg is a guy who can, who can trade insults with Trump and come out ahead, but, but I'm not betting on that. Can he sing? Um, so can there's he, just a can, lot. Can he sing? What's his singing voice like? What's his singing voice yeah, like? Yeah, have you ever heard him sing? Because I've got an idea for him, and uh, maybe, you know, as the boss of Real Clear, you might want to. Uh, sign some uh, writers for this. Uh, I think he should s- roll through South Carolina on a bus singing Michael Row Your Boat Ashore and other songs of the, you know, Freedom Riders in the 60s and really connect with people, kind of like Joe Biden and Hillary saying in the Southern accent, uh, I'm no ways tired. Do you think that'll work for him? I don't. <laughs> I don't think so. There was actually a clip of him speaking that was sort of bouncing around the Internet, a, a clip of him. I think he was, uh, there was an African-American woman who was protesting at one of his events. I didn't know why in Chattanooga that I mentioned earlier. And he starts to try and address her, and then he kind of rolls his eyes and says, I'll talk to you after. And just it's one of those things, like his patience for the little people is already starting to wear thin. So I think, oh, you know, again, it's going to be so good. John Cass- it's going to be interesting to see whether he's able to pull this off or not. Yeah, John thinks that he is very reminiscent in his style and his politics to our former mayor, Rahm Emanuel. And the more I learn about Bloomberg, the more I see some some similarities there. But We're talking to Tom Bevan, co-founder and president of Real Clear Politics. This is John Cass and Kristen McQuarrie filling in for Dan Prof on Valentine's Day on the Dan Prof Show. And we'll be right back. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. We're back with Tom Bevan of Real Clear Politics. We're talking politics, of course. What else are we going to talk about him? Spaghetti with him? Spaghetti carbonara for Valentine's Day. And uh, I've got a – we've dealt with the Bloomberg thing. What is going on with the Buttigieg business? Buttigieg. 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 What is happening? I'm looking on CNN. They're saying Trump allies attacking his Buttigieg's sexuality. What is going on? Tom <laughs> well, I think that's referring to Rush Limbaugh, who said some things the other day on his radio show, decided to attack Buttigieg and said that you know Trump, Trump will – <clears throat> beat him up over being gay. And Trump responded by saying, look, I, you know, he was asked about this yesterday, I think, and he said, look, I don't have a problem with it. I'd vote for a gay president. And Trump is actually probably the most pro-gay Republican president we've ever had. I mean, he had yes. Peter Thiel speak at the Republican National Convention. He was the first to let gays into his club down in Palm Beach. Um, <clears throat> so Donald Trump's record on that, I think, uh, is, is pretty darn progress- progressive from a Republican standpoint. Um, but look, Buttigieg 
he has performed well. He has overperformed in these first two states, and he's leading the delegate count by one over Bernie Sanders right now. So the question is, this is really um, <clears throat> this is really his time to really find out whether he is a, a contender or a pretender. You know, he's going to go to Nevada, uh, heavy Hispanic vote there. He's going to go to South Carolina. Uh, you know, 61% of the primary vote there is African-American, and he hasn't really gotten much, if any, support from from minority voters thus far. He's got about, what, eight days to, to, to work some magic in, in Nevada and about, you know, another few days after that for South Carolina. Um, and, and if he is able to win some, some minority support, then you could say, you know, Buttigieg is for real. If he doesn't, uh, things are going to get ugly for him on Super Tuesday because a lot of those states, you know, Texas, Alabama, Arkansas, they have uh, North Carolina heavily, uh, you know, African-American minority populations <clears throat> vote in the Democratic primaries. And so his, his train will come to a screeching halt uh, if he's not able to win some minority votes. What, what have you seen, if you had to just narrow it down to maybe one characteristic of Buttigieg, what is it so far in the, in the states that he's competed in that is so appealing about him? Well, he, he's done a really nice job. I was at a Buttigieg event in the middle of January in, um, where was it? It was in Newton, Iowa. This was the day after the Iowa debate, and it was a town hall format. And he does a very good job of speaking to folks, framing the issues, um, and framing his candidacy in terms of values, right? He talks about small town. He talks about faith. He talks about a lot of things that, that Iowa Democrats and, and even New Hampshire Democrats, um, you know, it's appealing to them. Now, he's, he presented himself. He talks about, you know, this a, a message of unification, of moving forward, of, of imagining the day after Donald Trump is out of the White House. And, and he talks about bringing people together and actually getting things done. All of that's really appealing to uh, – to Democrats and even some independents, right? Um, but he is also, at the same time, and this is the interesting thing, I mean, some of his policies are, are pretty left-wing. He was asked about late-term abortion uh, at a town hall recently, and basically, <clears throat> and on The View, I think, and, and really basically sort of dodged the question, just said, look, I think it's between a woman and her doctor. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, he's, he's for a lot of uh, some of these really left-wing policies, and, and that's the question of how it's going to play if he isn't the nominee in a general election. I'm always fascinated, Tom, by the use of, on the Democratic side, the use of symbolism, identity politics. Uh, it all works when they have a candidate. Um, if You know, there's a candidate and they appeal to specific groups, but based on race or gender, that's how they roll. But when you have candidates on that intersectional highway colliding with each other, you know, you have Buttigieg, who is gay. You have uh, Amy Klobuchar, who's, you know, a woman. You have these these conflicts. They start bumping into each other, and the the mythology gets all screwed up, I think. And and there there seem to be some conflicts there that aren't resolved. I guess they'll be resolved somewhat after Super Tuesday. Well, and the irony of the process for Democrats, right, is that they focus so much on identity politics, and and they're basically choosing between, you know, if Biden uh, can can come back, he'd be the third. But I mean, you got Bernie Sanders, who's seventy eight year old white guy, and Michael Bloomberg, who just turned seventy eight today, uh, billionaire New Yorker white guy. So. Um, and all of the minority candidates have had to drop out. Um, you know, Amy Klobuchar and, and Elizabeth Warren are the only women left in the race. And, and so it is, it's, there's an irony to that as well, that 
as the two strongest contenders right now for the nomination potentially um, are, you know, septuagenarian white guys. I, I think that is such a fascinating point because you don't see it covered that as much in, in that way. Every year we talk about Iowa and do we need to, you know, this is not a representative state and we have too many white voters choosing and narrowing the field. You know what? All of those minority candidates you had, you had a chance to get them to Iowa, Democratic voters. You didn't support them with fundraising. You didn't support them um, with polling. They dropped out before you even got to Iowa. It's it's not Iowa's fault that, that you didn't have Cory Booker. To, Spartacus. Who, you didn't have Cory Booker. You didn't have Kamala, Kamala Harris. You didn't have Julian Castro. They The party didn't support them. And yet, that's their thing. That's their thing is this identity politics. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I, I hear all these grievances from, from you know, Elizabeth Warren was saying, well, it's, it's the reason I'm not doing better is sexism. And, you know, African-Americans, Cory Booker and the others were saying, Kamala Harris were saying, look, it's they kind of blamed it on racism. I mean, and, <clears throat> I mean, this is this is ridiculous because the Democratic Party, party yeah. blaming their own party for race and basically calling Iowa Democrats racist and, and sexist. And, and you can be you can be sure when if Pete Buttigieg does not win the nomination, there will be some of his supporters, maybe some of his staffers will talk to the media about how. You know, if only he wasn't gay and homophobia within certain precincts of the Democratic oh, base. I can't like, wait to hear that. Nomination. So I can't wait to but, hear but, that because that'll be that's at least three columns worth of uh, intersectionality highway crash up. Well, and meanwhile, you know, Gallup had a poll out the other day that showed that voters are perfectly fine. 85, 90 percent say they're fine with voting for someone who's who's, you know, black, who's gay, who's. Catholic, Jewish, you name it. I mean, the only sector, the only uh, identifier that, that less than a, a majority voted for, only 45 people said they were okay with voting someone who's a socialist for president. Mass hysteria on the Democratic Party. We've had Tom Bevan of Real Clear Politics, our friend, co-founder, publisher of Real Clear Politics, and host of the Tom Bevan Show. Thanks for being here, John. Thanks, Tom. You got it. Thank you. This yep. is John Cass and Kristen McQuarrie filling in for Dan Croft. On Valentine's Day. I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Kristen McQuarrie and John Cass filling in for Dan Proft on the Dan Proft Show this Valentine's Day. I'm making spaghetti carbonara for my lovely bride. Are you really? Yeah. Okay. Listeners, listeners, go to chicagotribune.com. Look up John Cass's most recent Valentine's Day column. It's gorgeous, the column itself. And it includes a recipe that any schmo can throw together in the kitchen and it is what? Explain. Spaghetti carbonara. Basically, cook your spaghetti nine minutes in a pan. Once it's done, uh, put some eggs in there, raw, uh, raw egg yolks. That, mix that's it up. confusing to me. But you put it in. You take. You drain the pasta. Drain the pasta. And put then you in a bowl. throw. You throw eggs and in, in the pasta. Yeah. And and before you do that, you reduce. You you basically saute pancetta and onions, a little stock, a little. Pasta water, some frozen peas, mix it up in the in the pan. Then take your pasta, put it in the bowl, 
it's hot. Don't strain it. I mean, strain it. Don't rinse it. And it's hot. And then you put the eggs in there, mix it up, chop scallions on top, a lot of pepper, then pour in the reduced pan that you, you know, the peas, the pancetta, pour that in, mix it up with a lot of cheese. Grate the cheese. She could grate the cheese and you mix, okay? Or vice versa. It depends. It is so romantic. And while you're doing that, think about your Valentine's Day go-to movie, Kristen. I'm still thinking on that. You go. You have one that you say is very well, moving. You know, Moonstruck. Moonstruck, it's about a guy who tries to hit on Olympia Dukakis and she gets upset at him when he, she realizes he's married and she wants to kick her father-in-law to death or something. It's an Italian family. Sounds very romantic. And uh, no, if you've seen Moonstruck, it's great. I would also recommend uh, Notting Hill mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. Uh, I say all the Julia Roberts lines. I'm Betty just doesn't a, like. I'm just a girl. I'm just a girl standing, standing in front, in front of, of a boy. boy. Asking him, him to love me. Yeah. yeah, that is that's. A, I, I, oh man, do I cry on that? That that's a good I cry, one. I I cry more, you know, old Yeller when old Yeller get when has to die. I cry there. Rocky when Rocky uh, when Adrian wakes up from the coma and tells him to beat Apollo Creed and she says, "Win." Oh my God, I just bawl. But the Notting f- Hill. Notting Hill. I we're we're gonna take a break. In a, in a couple minutes here, and, and we're going to come back. We're going to talk about this throughout the show, so don't miss. I do have a good movie recommendation. We're going to talk about our favorite, our most romantic songs, and yes, our actual plans for Valentine's Day. This is John Cass and Kristen McQuarrie filling in for the Dan Prop Show. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. It was cold in Chicago that night, the night of Juicy Smollett, the French actor. It was freezing, freezing. And in the middle of the night, Juicy Smollett goes downstairs from his apartment in Streeterville, which is a very uh, upscale neighborhood in Chicago. And he feels the need for a tuna fish sandwich. I think it was around 2 a.m. He goes down, gets his tuna fish sandwich, and is attacked. Do you remember this? Do you remember what he said? Yes, America, you haven't forgotten what he said, have you? We live in a society where, as a gay man, you are considered somehow to be weak. And I'm not weak. I'm not weak. And we, are, as a people, are not weak. And, and we, as journalists, are not weak. This is John Cass and Kristen McQuarrie from the Chicago Tribune filling in for Dan Proft, talking about Jesse Smollett the way only Chicago people can talk because... Hey, we know this deal. What do you think? We've lived it, yeah. So it it became a national story, an international story 
um, that this actor was attacked and uh, the the attackers threw a substance on him and put uh, like a little noose around his neck. And of course, everyone jumped to his defense. And this is Donald Trump's fault and everything's wrong with society. And then his story started to fall apart. And it just didn't make a lot of sense. Um, It was the middle of the night on the coldest day of the year. Chicago had basically shut down. People were not leaving their homes. It was like 20 below zero or something. It was like 40 below with the wind chill. If you got out of your car, your, the fluid in your knees would freeze yeah. and you would shatter like a cartoon. <laughs> yes. And then, they're, and then they were able to sort of trace uh, these attackers. They got some footage of them actually purchasing the noose equipment. They were able to connect them to Jesse Smollett. Wait they a were second. his. Hold on. <laughs> but they weren't MAGA hat wearing white guys, Trump supporters. They were his friends. They had they the Osendario brothers. Them. Yes, and they were arrested as they were trying to flee the country. Right? Do I have all these little? But they were so, trying to flee the country back. They were trying to go to Nigeria, where their family lives. Yes. So living through this, there were leaks in this case every day, and it's making the front page of all the papers and reporters and TV people are just swarming around Jesse Smollett, who is going on national television. Was there anything better than that? Uh, basically, sympathetic interview. From ABC's Robin Roberts. It was just so delicious. Just check this out. It feels like if I had said it was a Muslim or a Mexican or someone black, I feel like the doubters would have supported me a lot much more, a lot more. And that says a lot about the place that we are in our country right now. You know what it says a lot about, Juicy? It says a lot that you could fight off two attackers holding a tuna fish sandwich in one hand at 2 o'clock in the morning and a cell phone in the other fighting for your life as they put a noose around your neck and you defeat them, knock them down, run, get away, escape, and become a hero on ABC while you're hoaxing a hate crime. And this was believed to be you know, a way that he could get attention and maybe boost his career. There was talk maybe he was going to be written off of the show. Anyway, the case starts to fall apart. The police spent, I don't know, how many hours investigating this, interviewing people. Um, they, the, a grand jury is convened. It com- they come back with and, and charge Jussie Smollett with, I think, 16 felony counts. Of faking a hate crime. Of faking a hate crime. And then you learn that the state's attorney, who is our current state's attorney, Kim Fox, there were phone calls made between uh, people who knew Jussie Smollett and her office, and she had to recuse herself at one point. No, she said she recused She said herself. she recused herself, but then emails that the press got access to later showed she really didn't. And a few weeks, like 16 days or something after the grand jury indicts him, her office drops all charges. He has to do some community service at Rainbow Push. And his That's entire case... Right. And his entire case is like wiped he it, it, it was expunged it wasn't even that they dropped the case it was not reporters sitting at the courthouse trying to type it in there's no record of it anymore and that has been the, now the, the questions for the past year have been surrounding the state's attorney's decision state's attorney kim fox a democrat who uh, is backed by the democratic boss of cook county tony preckwinkle chairman of the democratic party uh tony preckwinkle basis so you know controls the entire criminal justice system in Cook County. She's got the prosecutor, the public defender, and she holds the budget for the chief judge. And and we're seeing 
uh, his, we're seeing we're seeing bad stuff going on in Chicago right now. If you're a, if you're not a criminal, if you are a criminal, you should be happy. But what really got me about Jesse Smollett and Kim Fox, Kristen McQuarrie, was that she accepted a call from Michelle Obama's chief of staff, former chief of staff, Tina Chen, about Jesse Smollett and talk about could we just talk to the family and get together? So she picked up a lobbying call as a prosecutor. Now, all this is going on while she's out. Kim Fox is out in California with Kamala Harris and the Me Too movement. And, you know, there's something about the Me Too movement, which I support in general. I mean, I don't want women assaulted or threatened or or leveraged. But I I always I, I wonder when it's a Republican who's the offender. The Me Too movement's very strong in Illinois, in Chicago, where we're calling you from, in the place that birthed the Chicago way. If a Democrat is involved with allegations, the Me Too movement is very quiet, non-existent. And all this is going on. So we have identity politics, hate crimes, allegations that could trigger racial unrest, um, political unrest, violence, and there's Jesse Smollett and politics in the middle. And, the, and what you've heard about most recently, because of this controversy, they did appoint a special prosecutor to reopen this case, and the special prosecutor just re-indicted Jesse Smollett. And this is in the middle of the state's attorney running for re-election. She's on the ballot March 17th. And so now she's been forced to actually come in, out and talk about this. And really all she has said is that her office didn't properly communicate with the public about why they did what they did. And she's sort of positioning Jesse as someone who, nonviolent offender, um, you know, community service is something we would have done for the average little guy. That's sort of her response for right. those of Nonsense. you who are curious. Nonsense, because if you – what he did was put a national focus on Chicago as a hateful, racist homophobic place, which it is not. And once it was portrayed that way, once the Chicago was portrayed that way by this, uh, I have to be careful of what I say. Yeah, this but is radio. Like, Don't say this is swear radio, words. So I can't say, can't say bad words. But once it was portrayed that way, the media, as evidenced by Robin Roberts and ABC, George Stephanopoulos is the political director, um, agent zero of the Hillary Clinton campaign. Once they did that, it was open season in Chicago. And that that bothers me. I don't like people using, I don't like identity politics. I don't like judging people based on their gender, their race, their anything. Yeah. The content of the character is something that an, an, old, an old man who visited Chicago many years ago talked about. The content of the character. And easy talked about content of the character. Someone threw a brick and hit him in the head. It was Martin Luther King. But this is not what he would countenance. No, and it's, I mean, she will. she's on the ballot. So voters will decide whether or not this is a mistake big enough to end her career as a prosecutor. She's on the ballot, uh, like I said, March 17th is Illinois' primary. And she has three other Democratic opponents 
She just got the endorsement of Bernie Sanders. I think Elizabeth Warren has come to her aid. All the wolf um, warriors are coming in. They're sort of positioning this as, you know, okay, so maybe she bungled this case, but her body of work is deserving of another four-year term. What does it and, say about what does it say about na- about nationally? What does it speak to the national mood? about identity politics, hate crimes, and so forth, because there are hate crimes and there is violence in the world. And every time Jesse Smollett opens his mouth, he undercuts the real victims of this stuff. That's absolutely true. And, and, the, and the double standard. There are people who, who file false police reports and actually have to get, you know, serve some jail time or have it stay on their record. So the idea that he's getting special treatment, I think, is... Um, also very much a part of this case. And once again, Chicago and our kind of screwed up um, leadership on national display. You are listening to The Dan Prof Show. This is Kristen McQuarrie and John Cass filling in on this wintry Valentine's Day. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft. And the Dan Proft Show. This is John Cass and Kristen McQuarrie of the Chicago Tribune. We're filling in for Dan Proft on the Dan Proft Show on Valentine's Day. And our next guest, since we're journalists, we want to talk to a journalist, Nicholas Lemon, Dean Emeritus of the Faculty of Journalism at the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism, which I did not attend. I don't think Kristen did either. Mr. Lemon, are you here? Yes, I'm here. The other day you wrote a, a piece can, in the New York Times Book Review, Can Journalism Be Saved? Tell us about that. It wasn't in the New York Times Book Review. It was in the New York Review of Books. Oh, pardon um, me. Which, pardon me, sir. Which is noteworthy because they publish much longer essays, and this was about a whole shelf's worth of books on journalism. So what I did in that piece was review the economic collapse of the newspaper industry, um, which, as I don't have to tell you, has been very dramatic over the last about 20 years. Um, And the trend line, unfortunately, seems to be continuing. You know, one of the major chains, McClatchy, just declared bankruptcy yesterday. And then I try to explore various options if you want to preserve you know, this kind of journalism that newspapers have been doing without market conventional market support as, as a freestanding business. There was a list of, I read the, your piece, it was very well written and edited. There was a list, of many, a great deal of many books on, on journalism and the history of the collapse, sort of like were the Byzantines with the Seljuks right outside the walls of Constantinople uh-huh. right now. But uh, in your piece, you talk about solutions, which I thought you allowed that they would be problematic, and I do find them problematic, particularly the one to save newspapers. You mentioned government subsidy. How does right. that work? So let's go through the menu, okay? Okay. Um, number one, and what I usually heard during the years that I was dean of the journalism school at Columbia was that either the newspaper industry or somebody else, you know, digital startups would discover the new business model for news and would probably involve digital rather than print delivery, that 
this would be the answer, to be a kind of remaking of the newspaper industry so that went from thinking economically to rising. What I've seen and what, I mean, that's the ideal solution, we would all agree. I just don't see it happening. And I think it's time for those of us who love journalism to say, yes, we still hope that happens, but it doesn't seem to be happening, so let's think about what else might be possible, knowing that it's not ideal. Among the options are, one, sort of the benign patron-owner type scenario, like Jeff Bezos buying the Washington Post, as he did several years ago. The idea that somebody who's very, very rich from doing something else would buy a news organization and be relatively indifferent to whether or not it made money because this person would believe in its social mission. So you have this in a handful of cases. It works when it works. You have to have a publication that attracts the interests of such people, and you have to trust that they're going to be benign owners, so it only goes a certain way. Mm-hmm. Another is uh, the idea that newspapers can switch from being advertiser-supported, as they were for a long time, to being reader-supported, but that seems to be working only in the case of the New York Times and no other newspaper, so I'm not too optimistic about that as systemically. And then there's not-for-profit status, which is um, happening through startups and uh, uh, through conversions of uh, papers like the paper in San Diego, California, and the Philadelphia Inquirer. Um, That, too, is not perfect because, well, a Chicago example is, um, you know, your former colleague Jim O'Shea started a wonderful new Nonprofit website. A few I worked years there. Ago. Chicago News okay. Cooperative. I worked there. Yes. So you know from experience that just because you create a news nonprofit doesn't mean it's sustainable because it has to um, raise money. Yeah. Um, let, me, let me ask you this. Um, a lot of people. Sorry, I'm fighting a cold. So anyway, that's all lead up to. I call in this article, and I've been saying this for 10 years elsewhere. Uh, that also uh, forms of government subsidy should be uh, considered in the mix of possible solutions. Um, At this point, essentially all journalists I know say, I just got off the bus, I refuse to consider it. Um, But I think our profession should consider it. Well, public radio, I mean, we have a a very flourishing... um, the, the Chicago station for National Public Radio, they're hiring right and left. And I know that they're, they're donor-supported, but also um, get some sort of some government subsidies, uh, which is controversial right. whenever it comes up. Let me, let, me, let me switch you on to something really quick, because I know a lot of our listeners will be hearing this, and they'll be really offended at the idea of, of government subsidy. But they will also say that the decline in newspaper readership is partially our fault, that mainstream media got too left-leaning, um, that we just a bit that you know we've lost credibility. There's there's just a you know a, a real cloud hanging over uh, journalism right now in that regard. Is is there some truth to that, or do you reject that? Yeah, I I, I think that's a minor factor and not the major factor. I you know I think the major factor is um, as painful as it is for journalists to admit it journalists on the left and on the right, 
uh, people in the glory days of newspapers, at least economically, they didn't read newspapers for the news. They read newspapers for the sports, the stock tables, the weather, uh, the car ads, the classifieds, for a packet of information that wasn't, you know, political coverage. Coupons. Um, the editorial pages, as you know, are traditionally, in my whole long life as a journalist, the least read part of the paper. Um, You're crushing so I me think here. Mu- <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's much more that Google et al. figured out a way to get the information that people were getting from newspapers, not news, but just information, uh, into their hands uh, in a different way uh, for free and very conveniently. Mm-hmm. The, uh, we've been talking our- to Nicholas Laban. Lemon. Lemon. Sorry, I'm sorry. So sorry, I screwed up on the on the source of the book, okay. or source of the article. I, I'm not a new. I'm not a radio guy. I'm a print. We're guy. print guys. All right. Yeah. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. It was, it's a great so article. For- and and where can where can everybody find this, Nicholas? New York Review of Books. NY. I think it's nyrev.com. Great. And I want everybody to read it, but uh, I'll. But I do not want politicians picking panels to decide whether I should write a column or not. I don't think I'd have a job. <laughs> you would, you, in this uh, state, you would not. I, I would only add that we're speaking on a federally government-licensed radio station. True. Um, Touche. That, oh. too, has, has uh, potential for abuse. It's not being abused right now. Um, but, you know, a lot of systems can go wrong, uh, but that doesn't mean they will. The ever the optimist. Thank you, sir, very yep. much. This okay. Is, this is John Cass and Kristen McQuarrie, Barnacles, holding on to print media because we love it, and we know that without us, Dan Proft wouldn't have anything to talk about on the Dan Proft Show. You're listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. This is the Dan Prof Show on Valentine's Day. I'm John Cass with Kristen McQuarrie of the Chicago Tribune. I read a column, nationally syndicated. Kristen is the incoming editor of the Chicago Tribune's editorial page. Let's put it this way. We're not liberals, and it's kind of lonely. But let me tell you, I want to tell you a journalism story because of the, what we just heard from uh, Lemon. I wrote a column a couple days ago. It was about the Democratic crack up and how they're, you know, losing their minds over Bloomberg. And I mentioned a column in the New York Times by Thomas Friedman. He wrote a pro-Bloomberg column. And since we're talking journalism, I should tell you, it was kind of like there was a childlike quality to it in a sort of liberal yearning way. And he talked about who is the candidate that we could find to defeat Donald Trump? Who is the one? Who is the champion? And it went on and on. And this is in the New York Times. In the New York Times. Went on and on. And at the bottom of the column, there was a disclosure. After he said Bloomberg is the one and he's wonderful, the bottom of the column says, Disclosure, Bloomberg philanthropies, meaning his charities, have contributed to my wife's museum that she's building in Washington. And I thought, you use that as your tag end in italics at the end of the column. 
Shouldn't that have been the headline above the top? Bloomberg gives my wife money so she could have a museum, let's elect him president, New York Times, Thomas Friedman. What's wrong with journalism is that today. What's wrong with journalism is that attitude of insiders being slick. If I tried that, I'm going to ask, let me ask a a Chicago Tribune representative, Kristen, if I tried, if I gave a big wet kiss to a politician and then at the bottom said, oh, by the way, he gave, he's given Betty a lot of money for her programs, I would think I'd be fired. First of all, it would never show up in the Chicago Tribune. They would never allow, you know, disclosure doesn't mean that you get to still do the wet kiss. You stay as far away from that topic as possible. Exactly. You stay away from it. You know better. You do not interfere. I mean, we, I know, I know the mainstream media and newspapers, we get a really bad rap, especially from the right, because too many reporters are left-leaning and... We're losing credibility, and, and we listen to we have we double listen. standards when it comes to you know the standard we hold Republicans to, and then the standard that we hold Democrats to. I get all of that, yeah. but I have to say, at the Chicago Tribune, at least, we sign an ethics statement every year where you have to disclose if you took some if you had lunch with someone. Right. You can't put a political sign in your yard. Obviously, you can't sign a petition. You can't do anything that might even be considered a conflict of interest. I can't join the NRA, which I want to. But I can't. But I don't. I don't even know if it's on the conflict form. I'm not saying it is. I don't know that it is. But, but right, I don't want memberships. You can't run for school board. You. Can't. I don't want to be in anything that someone can point to. And for for the, and Lehman Lehman had an interesting argument about he wants subsidies. But you know what? I don't want the wife of Tom Friedman to be selected by Bloomberg to be on a board after he gave her money, and she's going to select what newspapers are going to survive in the subsidy world of of the future. See what I mean? Yeah. Why do you think Bloomberg gave her a donation to her museum, which is, by the way, she's on the board of directors for Planet Word, which is a Washington, D.C.-based private museum dedicated to language that is anticipated to open in May 2020. Bloomberg knew what he was doing. He's giving money to the wife of a premier New York Times well-read columnist. If we did, we don't do that in Chicago. You know, it's not done at the Chicago Tribune, I can tell you that. But what's even more bothersome, it's not that why haven't people picked up my column on this, because I think it is a syndicated one. So it's it's so at, go read it at chicagotribune.com. Yeah, or you can read it at any many sites throughout the country, including Town Hall and others, where they don't run liberals. But I, it just bothered me, Kristen, that that's the kind of thing for all Nick Lemon's uh, discussion about what it's not. You brought up in the, our interview with him what bothers people. And it's that kind of thing that inside – we're the elites. We're part of it. We're part of the ruling class, and they're the great unwashed on the outside. That's what drives people crazy about our business. It just it chips away at the credibility of the rest of us who try to be so careful to avoid any sort of a conflict. Uh, and then you have stories like that. We've had a couple cases in Chicago where reporters got copies of Rahm Emanuel's emails, and there were there were a couple journalists who were looking for some favors or. There have been, over the years, accusations of people getting jobs for their spouses, from politicians. It's just, it's wrong, and it, it should say a lot about the New York Times that they allowed that to, to be printed, even with, even with the disclosure. 
Thanks for listening to us tonight. We are filling in for the Dan Proft Show. I am Kristen McQuarrie, the incoming editor of the editorial page at the Chicago Tribune, sitting in with John Cass, and we'll be right back. And hold my hand. Love is kind of crazy with a spooky little girl like you. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. This is the Dan Proft Show. I'm John Cass. With me is Kristen McQuarrie of the Chicago Tribune. I write a nationally syndicated column. She is the incoming editor of the editorial board. And yeah, we listen to conservative talk radio. We know Dan Prof. We're, we're lonely. We're, we're very lonely people in Chicago. Odd, isn't it? So take your stereotypes about print journalists and just put it in the garbage and listen to this. The Democratic Party, what is going on? I just see a group of people that are having a mass psychosis psychotic breakdown. They had, uh, it was like they listened to Adam Schiff. They stared into the bulging eyes of Adam Schiff. There would be an impeachment. He would be gone. He's a Russian agent and all that. And when all that, that fantasy disappeared, they seemed to have collapsed into some sort of jibber jabber. Now we've got Michael Bloomberg as the champion of African Americans in the South. You have Joe Biden talking about, in his southern accent, about he's no ways tired. What is going on, Kristen? You know, I w- I'm terrible at predictions. We work in the punditry business. And so people, early on, who do you think is going to be the front runner among the Democrats? And as soon as Joe Biden got in this race, I thought, well, it's over. It's over. I mean, he's, I, I still remember his debate against Paul Ryan as a vice presidential candidate. And he was... He was good. He was kind of he was bold. He knew his he knew his stuff. He was policy driven. He was relaxed. He actually came across as experienced and um, competent. I, and, and, exactly. And wow, have the wheels come off of that train? You're just a lion, dog faced pony soldier. What was that about? <laughs> I don't know. I'm still trying to figure that. I don't know. That was his one of his latest outbursts. But I mean, there's almost one every day. So. I, I do think that he will get a boost when he hits some of these southern states. But I am still interested in Bloomberg. I just feel like this field is so flat. And Democrats are still looking for someone who can beat Donald Trump, who is competent and who sort of fits into that progressive mold. And the former, yes, Republican mayor of New York City might be it. And he's got gobs of money. How's he progressive? Um, There's no he's not. He's a capitalist. Yes. A super capitalist. And what we're seeing here, I think, the connection between big capital and big government. It's not called progressive. Big capital and big government, I think they had it by, it was called another name in the 1930s. Okay? And that's where you see the elites, like suburban elites, people in the suburbs, in metropolitan areas, who are Democrats now, lawyers, that lawyer manager group. The white suburban women Democrats, they're all part of the elite. Where does that leave Bernie Sanders and the 45% of the progressives? 
I mean, he's doing surprisingly well, in my opinion. I was not expecting him to come, you know, win Iowa, basically. But I think his days are numbered because I actually think the heart of the party is not the loud, on-the-front-pages progressive wing that we keep seeing. Rank-and-file Democratic voters are looking for someone to moderate. It's partly why Pete Buttigieg, I think, is doing so well. He's the only one who's not saying, you can have everything for free. And so he's just going to delay it. He's talking about gliding. Right. He said, I have a glide. I'll glide there, which which means he'll glide slowly. And basically, we'll have government run health care with Pete Buttigieg, too. Well, they're all running to the left right now. But you also have to remember, you and I are actually talking about policy stuff. Most voters are going to walk in the booth and say, who do I kind of like and who's best for my future? And I have to say some of those Bloomberg initial ads where he cuts through the noise, he, he pulls like a CNN debate or something, and everyone's yelling at each other. Yeah, and he's sitting with Obama. But, but it's effective. I mean, it, it, we are all tired of the cable news um, chatter and vitriol and all the politics. And so if he just kind of stays above policy and just floats in, you know, I can, I can bring everybody together, I can unify, he might be one to watch. Kind of like the Eisenhower of the left? Maybe. I mean, he does he he does have that nanny state problem, but that's really only a problem on the Republican side. Running as a Democrat, that's people will be fine with that. The big gulp, the you know, we're no, no red meat. People like bag the, bands. People, people, it's called. There's a strain. I have to disagree with you. There's okay. a strain here in this country. It's called freedom, and no, and people don't like to be told what to do. We don't like to be told, hey, you can't have those fries. No flaming hot chips for you. I'm going to Florida. I mean, I'm going through South Carolina on the bus singing Michael Go- Row the Boat Ashore, saying I'm, I'm all down with black people, but don't eat any flaming hot chips or big gulp because I told you to. He also, there are st- there's stuff out there, clips and things he said where he basically said the following. I do want to raise taxes on the poor. We have to because... I have to make them do what I want them to do for their own good. That kind of nonsense, that, that nanny state thing is antithetical to what to Trump's position or Trump's uh, persona. You know, Trump is like, I, I'm going to eat two big, I'll have a big gulp and two Big Macs with extra sauce. You know? I, I just think that's more an issue on the Republican side. On the Democratic side, they're fine with raising taxes. They're fine with... Um, to tell some, poor people what to do? Well, and he's not just poor people, but everybody. But, but he's also, for that side, good on guns. He has a strong record. He was in Cook County at one point here in Chicago trying to help um, some gun advocates. He has funded the campaigns of some of our Congress people, yeah. Congresswomen, Robin Kelly. So he, he will come out with a few strong ads on guns. I do think the, the ad that he has running now is, is good. And most, most voters will, only, will vote based on ads. And I think he'll be a pretty decent debater, too. So Yeah, he will be. Didn't I start debater. out saying, though, I'm wrong about everything, and I thought Joe Biden was going to be the nominee? So. You did. And uh, I still th- you know, I think that if you, if you want to get rid of Trump, I'll I'll get rid of Trump too if I get six, four or five more uh, conservative Supreme Court justices. I'll say goodbye. But right now it's Bloomberg. He's buying it. 
He's, he's buying, buying this whole yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. I love that he told his Bloomberg reporters, because he runs a me- runs a whole media organization, that they're not allowed to write anything critical about him. Nice. That's cuckoo. This is John Cass and Kristen McQuarrie. We're from the Chicago Tribune, and we're filling in for Dan Prof of the Dan Prof Show. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back from the little break. We're going to talk some more Valentine's Day romantic advice. We're going to give you our favorite romantic movies and songs. This is the Dan Prof Show with Kristen McQuarrie and John Cass filling in. We are of the Chicago Tribune. And John Cass, if you missed it, gave us a wonderful recipe. I'm, that is a recipe I think I could probably handle. I'm so not the easy. swiftest in the, in the kitchen. But we were talking about movies. And I love the movie Something's Gotta Give. With Diane Keaton and, um, oh gosh, I'm going to forget his name. Jack Nicholson? Yes. Do you love that movie? I love that movie. I can't stand Diane Keaton. I've, I've never liked her ever since two things. She got the abortion in Godfather. I've always hated her guts oh ever since. Oh my gosh. Oh. It's an abortion, Michael. A son. I could never look at her again. Okay. I had to turn well, away. in this movie, though, they have really great chemistry. They're midlife. Um, she falls in love with him, but then he leaves her, and she's so sad, and she writes a play, and then she's they get together. Spoiler alert, they get together in the end in Paris. I don't know. I just, I love that movie. I think the acting is really So you're going to watch it again? I mean, it's possible. I think I do have that one at home um, permanently. Go on, demand. What about most romantic songs? When you're driving in the car, is there a song that brings you to a certain place and makes your heart go pitter-patter? The Star-Spangled Banner. Okay. That's my favorite song in my romance with the United States of America and the Constitution for which it stands. Okay. All right. I don't hear the Star-Spangled Banner too often on my FM dial, but I'm with you. It, that's a moving What else? Moving I mean, song. like a, what? Like you want a cry song? Turn on Joni Mitchell. It's uh, uh, the one where she sings about the little boy yesterday. He found a, a, a dragonfly in a jar or something, and he starts crying. Everyone cries. <laughs> I don't think I know that. All right. What about... Uh, Dan Fogarty, Longer. Great, great song about a long relationship and marriage. Um, Lady in Red, that 80s, 1980s, one-hit wonder. Love Lady in Red. That's a good one. Um, anything Leonard else? Cohen. What did you dance at your wedding? What song was your wedding dance? Do you remember? Our song? Yeah. At our wedding? Mm-hmm. Frank Sinatra, of course. Which song? Summer Wind. Oh, nice. And really, if you listen to Summer Summer Wind, it's kind of, there's a sadness about it, wistfulness. But, you know, I'm married to a beautiful Sicilian. We had Frank Sinatra. What can I say? At a banquet hall. No one goes to banquet halls. They go to fancy. You know, if you're going to look for a movie, can I tell you one? Yes, you have about 10 seconds before I have to break. Go the, for it. The um, Random Harvest. Five handkerchief movie. <laughs> Ronald Coleman. Greer Garson, amnesia, he forgets about her, he finds her again, love, it's just gorgeous. All right, that's a recommendation from John Cass on this Valentine's Day. You are listening to The Dan Prof Show with Krista McQuarrie and John Cass, and we'll be right back. I think I'm in love. Am I right to- 
the fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. This is the Dan Proft Show. John Cass from the Chicago Tribune and Kristen McQuarrie, Chicago Tribune, are filling in for Dan Proft because uh, we know that without newspapers, talk show radio hosts have nothing to talk about. And uh, we hope Dan has a great Valentine's Day. We're having fun filling in, and particularly our next guest, to talk about something very important to us as journalists here in Chicago in, with all the crime going on and in New York, and in San Francisco. Our next guest, Rafael Manguel, who studies decarceration. He is a fellow at the City Journal and has a great column out. Uh, Targeting cops, increasingly lenient treatment of career criminals is putting more police in danger. We're going to talk about that. We have so much on-the-ground experience with this in Chicago as well. So welcome to the show, Rafael. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Tell me about tell me about your piece. Tell readers or our listeners what what you cover in this most recent article. Yeah, so I've I've been on with 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 Dan a couple times. So I hope some of the listeners um, you know kind of have a sense of of my take on some of these issues. But I've been talking and writing about what I call decarceration for a really long time. Basically, that just means you know uh, policies that are proposed with the main goal of reducing prison and jail populations. And, you know, a lot of people talk about the injustices of our criminal justice system and the unfairness of long prison terms for, for some people. And I think they get a lot of things wrong. Uh, for, for one thing, uh, incarceration is actually a pretty rare sanction um, that's not handed down all too often. And when it is, most people don't serve very long periods of time. Um, but the sort of trend uh, toward adopting policies that, that are aimed at reducing these populations have really kind of hit a lot of communities hard. Um, uh, Chicago South and West Sides, I think, are, are a perfect example of that. And, you know, one of the main problems with these policies and pursuing them is that the people that they're pursued in the name of, right, people who are living in low-income, vulnerable communities who are allegedly victimized by the criminal justice system, um, a lot of people ignore the fact that they're also often uh, disproportionately the victims of violent crime. And so one of the points that I like to make is that you know, decarceration actually often hurts people who are already living in these vulnerable communities because they're the ones who are going to have to deal with um, the fallout from those policies because we know that crime is heavily concentrated um, in American cities and across the country more generally. But there's another population that by virtue of the nature of the work that they do that has to deal with 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 criminal actors um, on a regular basis and that's cops and so the more dangerous criminals that we put on the street pursuant to these misguided policy um, proposals the more dangerous life becomes for police and I think we see that um, in a lot of these cases where police have been targeted um, by repeat offenders with extensive criminal histories who probably shouldn't have been on the street to begin with. We see it all the time. The the social justice warriors sell it as kindness. We won't put people in jail. We'll we'll free them from jail. They won't have to sit in jail while they're waiting trial. Uh, It's about money. It saves money. Just in Cook County alone, it saves about $200 million a year if you're not uh, 
keeping people with charged with serious offenses in jail. And they put them on home monitoring, and then they right. rig up the home monitoring bracelet, plug it into their um, car lighter. I've, I've done columns on this. And then and they end up at crime scenes where people get shot. And then reporters, exactly right. reporters go and they talk to the victim's parents, and they say, oh, my God, my son's been killed. Why did this have to happen? And the social justice warriors and the Democrats from Chicago, New York, um, San Francisco, and Los Angeles particularly point their fingers away from themselves. Is it, do I have it right? Oh, I think you've got it exactly right. And, you know, especially when we talk about um, the issue of bail reform, which has been really popular both in Chicago and New York, you know, a lot of defenders of these reforms will point to some of these non-monetary conditions on release, like ankle monitors, like home confinement, like court-mandated check-ins, as, as, as effective prophylactics uh, that mitigate the risks of, of new violent crimes being committed by some of these folks who get released. And we know in practice and in reality that they're not effective um, uh, prophylactics to, to anything. You know, uh, an ankle monitor is simply a piece of plastic attached to someone's foot. It doesn't stop them from pulling a trigger. It doesn't stop them from leaving their house. Um, and there was a really fantastic piece done by, by one of your colleagues, David Jackson, um, in the Chicago Tribune that came out yesterday that, you know, really kind of highlights, um, you know, exactly these sorts of cases. And, and actually, I think, did a really good job of just kind of undercutting the data that has underlied this narrative for a really long time. Judge Timothy Evans, um, you know, put out a, a report in May purporting to, um, you know, to sort of poo-poo the concerns of those, uh, you know, who were worried that, that Chicago's bail reform was going to lead to more crime. And it turns out that when you do a real analysis of that report, um, it's pretty much rigged to, um, to, to, to come to the result that, that it came to. And I really got to, you know, uh, give a thumbs up and, and a round of applause to the Chicago Tribune for, for doing a really great piece of reporting yesterday. We we are right there with you. I mean, it was a it's you, you talk about journalism not being accountable. That was accountability journalism because in, in this exactly. two years ago in Cook County, they relaxed the the cash bail requirements and uh, doubled the number of, of felony defendants who were basically being released without even having to post a cash bond. And the chief judge kept waving around this report saying it's not making you less safe. It's everything's OK. And our reporters dug in and found that the metrics that they used you know, all the whole report was cherry picked, basically, and they weren't counting certain crimes as being violent crimes. So, yes, we are in the middle of this in Chicago, trying to. We have leadership and a, and a Cook County State's Attorney's race that's going to be on the ballot on March seventeenth, where this issue is 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 prime. It is, you know, are we are we swinging the pendulum too far in favor of defendants um, releasing them? Not not. You know, the jail population is way down. Let me just give you a couple of the claims that the other side will say. We did have a problem in Cook County Jail where you had people, retail theft, people who just didn't have the means to make cash bail, nonviolent offenders sitting behind bars, um, one person for seven years waiting for Now, he was charged with murder, but he died in jail. And these are people, again, who are charged, not convicted. So what does your research tell you about that argument? Yeah, well, a couple things. I mean, first, you know, the idea that someone is being held on a nonviolent offense doesn't really tell us a whole lot about the risk that they pose to the public, right? I mean, the, one of the main critiques that, that's most potent about cash bail uh, that led to a lot of the reforms, including the one in Chicago, is that it's inherently unfair to hold someone um, 
in an incarceration setting simply because they are poor, because they can't afford uh, to meet the monetary conditions um, in order to secure their releases. And, and I take that, right? I think that's a fair point. I think that's a potent critique of the old system. But there are multiple ways to go about addressing that inequity. One of them is to sort of just take cash bail off the table and just, you know, just dramatically increase the number of releases um, that the system produces in a given year. The other way, though, is to prioritize public safety as the main consideration in a judge's determination as to whether someone gets to spend the pretrial period inside or outside of jail. Now, Chicago did you know, uh, create a system that gave judges some discretion to remand dangerous defendants to pretrial detention when a, a pretrial risk assessment showed you know, that, they, that they posed a very high risk of, of committing a new violent uh, felony while they were out. But you know, if you look at the data on the research that's been, been done in jurisdictions across the country, what you'll find is people who are facing charges for violent felonies tend to have lower rearrest rates during the pretrial period than people facing you know, charges for misdemeanors or nonviolent felonies. Um, one of the reasons for that is because misdemeanors and nonviolent felonies are committed much more often, so you're much more likely to get caught for something like that if you're a high-volume offender. Right? A shooting is not something that you do on a regular basis, even if you are a particularly hardened criminal. Um, but there are a lot of nonviolent and misdemeanor offenses that you'll commit on a regular basis, which is how you'll end up arrested and before a, a, a criminal court judge. And so using the instant offense that someone is facing is, is not a very good indication of the risk that they pose. Usually criminal history, age, um, ties to the community, all these factors are, will tell you exponentially more about someone's risk um, to the public. And so, you know, I do think that a lot of these arguments are flawed insofar as they rely on the charge that someone's facing in, we, a, in a particular case. At a we are talking time. to Rafael Manguel of City Journal. We'll be right back on the Dan Prof Show. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show we are talking to rafael manguel of city journal this is john cass and Kristen mcquarrie of the chicago tribune filling in for dan proft talking about criminal justice and the game being played politically that everybody seems to have a gut feeling about but haven't read haven't seen the policy effects and we're seeing them in the news every day yeah we are um i wanted to ask you if you have any thoughts Raphael, on stop and frisk this is becoming a big issue with mike bloomberg's presidential campaign he has kicked off today um bloomberg for black america and he's trying to sort of backtrack on on that on that policy position that he had as mayor in new york and we have had similar conversations in chicago our former police superintendent was uh he favored stop and frisk and thought it was an effective crime strategy what what do you think 
Oh, I think it's absolutely an effective crime strategy if it's deployed in an intelligent way, I mean, in a measured way, in, in, in high crime hotspots, which is, which is really what New York did, right? I mean, I think Bloomberg is absolutely wrong to renounce his prior support for stop and frisk. Um, you know, there are a couple problems with, with the arguments that have been made. One of the favorite arguments that people like to make is they point to New York and they say, well, look, we know that in the wake of, of um, the Floyd case, which was the litigation uh, about stop and frisk in New York City, that New York City dramatically decreased the number of stops and frisks that police were doing. And that's true. And then they'll say, well, since 2014, despite that dramatic decrease, crime didn't go up. Therefore, we know that stop and frisk was an ineffective crime fighting tool. But that is a really just kind of ridiculous unilateral, univariate analysis that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because it doesn't control for a lot of really important factors that contribute to why crime didn't go up in the wake of that reduction. I mean, for one thing, in 2000, the year 2000, when, when Bloomberg took office or just before Bloomberg took office, there were something like 13 of the 75 precincts in, in the NYPD that saw more than 20 murders a year. By 2013, that number was down to one. So, you know, for one thing, in that interim period, New York just had a lot fewer dangerous neighborhoods, which meant that there were a lot fewer places that were susceptible to crime increases in response to shifts in criminal justice policy, right? We do have some counterfactual examples. Chicago is one of them, right? You know in 2016 that police dramatically reduced the number of stops that they were doing of, of pedestrians in that city. Um, I think it was something like around the order of 70 or 80% in 2016 alone. Now, a couple of criminologists, Paul Castell and Richard Fowles, who were actually uh, uh, quoted in that Chicago Tribune piece yesterday on bail reform, they did a really phenomenal study that was published in the University of Illinois Law Review that you know regressed for all these other factors and, and found that the decrease in stops done by Chicago's police in 2016 accounted for something like 75% of the murder spike that happened that year. We know that murder spiked about 60%. We have counterfactuals in Baltimore where um, police-initiated uh, interactions on the street are down something like 70%. And yet, since then, crime is, is at a near all-time high. In fact, actually, Baltimore's homicide rates recently surpassed its 1990s peak. So, you know, the New York example doesn't really tell you a whole lot because New York is very different from a lot of jurisdictions in very important ways that don't make it particularly susceptible to crime increases uh, today. Now, one of the important things to, to, to keep in mind is that one of the reasons New York has changed so much is partly because of stop and frisk and its contributions to the crime decline uh, through the 90s and early 2000s. Yeah. And there's actually some really good work done on this, right? So, you know, there, a lot of liberals will, on this issue will point to studies looking at New York and saying, well, it didn't find, you know, that stop and frisk had any real effect here. The unit of measurement is really important. All those studies will use citywide crime, right, as the thing that didn't change. In, in relation to stop and frisk. But the reality is, is that as in Chicago, right, where the crime picture is very different on the north side than on the south side, in New York City, not every neighborhood, not every precinct is a high crime precinct. And the fact of the matter is, is that stop and frisk was not a tactic that was evenly deployed across the city. So using a citywide crime um, measure is a really kind of weak unit of measurement to tell you anything about a policy. There is an issue, though. Down, there is an issue, though. Time. There is an issue that bothers me. It's called fairness. Sure. When policy can be discussed on a talk show, on the pages of the edit of an editorial board, in a column, it's one thing. It's another thing when you unleash police, which I, I'm pro law enforcement, but I think that when you unleash police, sometimes you get a a bad result, and that is going up to people and patting them down. 
It's almost sure. it's almost like a 1950s movie of East Germany, and, I, and it bothers me. I think I think that if deployed irresponsibly and 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 not and with and without adequate oversight, I do think stop and frisk is one of these things that is susceptible to abuse. Right. The question is, is how much of what New York and Chicago and other jurisdictions were doing constituted that abuse. Right. Too often, I think that stop and frisk, which is you know constitutionally recognized as a permissible crime fighting tactic, right, when it's supported by reasonable suspicion, that too often its use is conflated with its misuse. And uh, I, I think when you dig into to what was going on in a lot of these jurisdictions, I think you'll find a lot less misuse um, than, than what we saw. And, and I do think also that the benefits outweigh those legitimate concerns about fairness when you, when you actually do an analysis that looks at how these policies affected crime in the city's most high crime areas, right? Um, David Weisberg is a, is a criminologist, um, I think at, at, at UPenn did a, a study in, in 2014, uh, sorry, at, at George Mason, did a study in 2014 which used a microgeographic uh, unit of measurement for stop and frisk in New York City. And what it found was a really statistically significant deterrent effect on crime in those crime hotspots. And those are the people who really do need the benefits of these policies, right? Uh, again, I, I take the fairness point and, you know, the fact that this policy is not something that everyone in the city was equally likely to come into contact with. But the reality is, is that crime victimization isn't evenly distributed either. And I, if I could just, living in if I could, yeah, just to that point, and then I, we, we've got a couple minutes, I want to ask you another Bloomberg question. But to your point about sure. crime victims, it isn't talked about enough. And we have a new mayor who during one of her first tours around the city had women on, you know, grandmas and and aunts and single moms on the west side, which is one of our really high crime areas, begging her to help them. They are prisoners in their own homes because of uh, the fear of violent crime. Their kids learn, uh, you know, they hear firecrackers and everybody hits the floor. We've had shootings of 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 a... a man sitting at his at his desk paying the bills for the family, getting ready to start family movie night. So that is always lost in the conversation is that the police officers and the, and the protection angle are trying to protect the victims. And they are mostly minorities, at least in the city. I want to pivot from that point, though, really quickly, because we we're, we're coming to you from the Midwest. We don't know that much about Mike Bloomberg. You guys just did a piece kind of looking at his record on crime. Can you just in a few in, a, in less than a minute tell us what the rest of the country is going to see as he gets elevated in the presidential election. What is his role going to be? What are his weak spots? What are his um, strong spots? Yeah, I mean, look, I think his weak spots, for sure, if you care, if you are, you know, conservatively or libertarian inclined, um, you know, his main weak spot is that, that he's, a, you know, a, a big government nanny state, you know, kind of leader. I mean, and while he had a pretty good record on crime in New York City, I think a lot of that was due to just giving um, really good leaders of the police department the space to operate um, and sort of trusting um, the trajectory that had that the, the city was already on, and and trusting that that was a good trajectory to be on, right? I mean, in hiring Ray Kelly to take over as police commissioner, I think led to a lot of that. But in, beyond that, I think you saw Bloomberg really try to sort of inject government into everyday life in a lot of really concerning ways. We're going to have to drop it there. I'm so sorry, we're we're out All of good. time. No but worries. Rafael Manguel of of City Journal, go read his stuff. Um, really, you're not going to find a better expert on all of these crime reduction strategies that are. Um, unfolding across the country. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. 
This is John Cass and Kristen McQuarrie. We're reporters, journalists from the Chicago Tribune. I'm a columnist. Kristen is the incoming editor of the editorial page of the Chicago Tribune. Only the second woman to ever do that job. She's going to do a great job. Although I lose a conservative colleague, I, I gain a boss. I am going to be your boss. Isn't that odd? I'm instituting a time clock system. You're going to have to punch in. No more lunches. you got to eat at your desk. Uh, you need to check in with me before you use the restroom, smoke breaks, all of that. And I will, I will instituting uh, new rules. Please give me the list of forbidden words and subjects. <laughs> um, but right now, we're sitting in for Dan Proft of the Dan Proft Show. And our next guest on this Valentine's Day is a romantic at heart. A very romantic fellow, Jazz Shaw of Hot Air, the Hot Air blog. Uh, he's always causing trouble, and uh, I guess he's just never going to stop. Good morning, or good afternoon, good evening on this Valentine's Day, Jazz Shaw. <laughs> nice to talk to both of you. How you doing? Good. We're good. We're in we're in um, Jussie Smollett territory here. We have so much information about this case, and I know you've been writing about it and blogging about it, so... What are people outside of Chicago, what do they think when they keep hearing all these crazy developments in this case? I think they probably have the same opinion of the government in the city of Chicago as they've had for a very long time going all the way back to the dailies. And if anybody's talking and their lips are moving, they're probably lying. Mm-hmm. But uh, <laughs> sorry, I know that's a little rough, but just it, that government just seems to generate so many interesting characters and stories. But the, the Jesse Smollett thing is... Uh, it's bothered me since the beginning, and but now I, isn't the focus more on Kim Fox? I mean, she's running for re-election, and now she has contenders in a primary, I guess, and they're bringing up the uh, the whole Jussie thing and how that was handled. So yes. I, I don't know. Do you, do you think she gets another term? Well, so she was elected four years ago sort of on this uh, trajectory of criminal justice in Cook County needing some reform. We had a case of a police shooting where uh, it was basically a a cover-up in City Hall of this 17-year-old who was shot 16 times by police. It just inflamed the the city, the county, the state. And so she sort of floated into office on this idea that we need to have a more trusting relationship with our police department. She has since then instituted um, some policies that are controversial where you know, she's if you have retail theft or, you know, under a thousand dollars, they don't even deal with you. If you come in with if your gang comes into a a high end store on Michigan Avenue, each of you can steal nine hundred dollars worth of stuff, which is happening ten times in a row. And then if you get charged once, then you might get charged again. So against that backdrop, you have the Jussie Smollett case, which, I mean, there's no question she bungled it beginning to end. And yes, she's now on the ballot in the Democratic primary. Our primary is March 17th. There are four people running, Kim Fox among them. And um, she is based, you know, she's defending her decision in that case. We had a special prosecutor come out and re-indict him. So it's not good for her. But to, to your question, she's running against three other people who are probably likely to sort of split up the anti-Kim Fox vote. And she could very well win a for uh, another term. And meanwhile, uh, Mr. Smollett, if I understand it, is only being charged with a series of misdemeanors now? I think it's six counts of disorderly conduct um, and, you know, lying to various police officials. So, so I don't know that, that that's the end of it. I think that's just how they're 
this is sort of the opening salvo. What a, what a, you know you're call, you're talking to us from upstate New York and we're or New York and we're we're here in Chicago. What do people in New York think about it? What do people outside of Chicago think about it? Mostly, I, I never hear from anyone to speak of that thinks that this wasn't a hoax entirely. And the ones who pay attention and dig into the details, it also seems to be a very popular opinion that Ms. Fox didn't just drop those charges out of routine prosecutorial discretion. You mean when she got a call? She got a call. She made a couple of calls. I I guess the Obamas were involved tangentially uh, through some intermediary. Uh, other powerful political influential, you know, figures, and uh, they didn't want to see Jesse Smollett go down, and he didn't. It's called the <laughs> Chicago way, Jez Shaw. The Chicago <laughs> way. You know somebody, they know, I got a guy, he's going to call you, don't worry about it. We're talking <laughs> to Jez Shaw on this Valentine's Day. When we come back after the break, he's going to tell us all about those romantic burgers, cheeseburgers you can buy in New York for, I think they're only 50 bucks a piece. This is John Cass and Kristen McQuarrie of the Chicago Tribune filling in for Dan Proft on the Dan Proft Show. We'll be right back. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Jazz Shaw on the Dan Proft Show. This is John Cass and Kristen McQuarrie filling in for Dan, who I hope has a date on Valentine's Day. Jazz, what are you going to do for Valentine's Day? Uh, the usual. I got to... Well, there's no way my wife could be listening to this right now. So I got her balloons and chocolate, and we're going out to dinner this evening. So it's pretty much what we do every Valentine's Day. Do you, where do you go? Tell us where you're going. Nothing really that fancy because we just went out for a uh, different celebration and kind of splurged a bit. But uh, we're going to go to a place called the Broadway Diner, which has uh, really great Rubens and, you know, stuff like that. Mm, they, they make their own Thousand Island dressing, I think, right? I think I've been there. Oh, of course. So tell it. Let's switch gears a little bit. Um, you wrote also recently about, uh, and and your organization has. We're talking to you from hot, your hot air. Um, what do you make of Barr coming out and kind of wagging his finger at Trump's tweeting? Is this going to be the final moment when Donald Trump takes a breath and gets off of his phone? Not a chance. No. <laughs> Not a chance. Okay. <laughs> never, never going to happen. No. That, that that is the president's uh, modus operandi. He is always on the attack. He's always on the offense. He doesn't like being, you know, playing defense. And anybody can wag their finger at him that wants to, but he's going to be barking back at them. So, and we, we've already seen it. I mean, he, he's come out and been tweeting things about Barr already, and everybody else that's commented on it or associated with it. And uh, I don't know. I just saw recently his approval rating hit the highest in uh, Gallup that it's been of his entire presidency, you know, and he was just impeached. So it seems to be working for him. Do you think that that is that just him tweeting that 
could be grounds for, I know this sounds ridiculous, but the Democrats are talking about impeachment again. I mean, could is that really interference when the president tweets about justice and some of those prosecutors? Do you consider that to be... Um, you know, possible impeach, you know, an impeachable offense. Do I? Yes. No, commenting on something uh, is, is not interference. Uh, if you ask Nancy Pelosi, probably putting your socks on in the morning is impeachable. So we'll have to wait and see what they want to do. But if they really want to try that again after the last one blew up in their face, uh, good luck, I guess. What bothers me about the president's tweeting is that why I find it entertaining. And I understand, uh, you know, I write four columns a week and you write a lot of blogs. You're blogging every day on hot air. So that fills space. He's kind of like the Mike Ditka in Chicago when Mike Ditka was the coach of the Bears. Every day was a story. Every day was a headline. And it was really easy on the sports writers. My problem is with this commenting on the Justice Department that there's an investigation going on of the deep state of people who were working for Obama who lied about who lied on FISA warrants and investigated a president. So we had a the sainted Obama administration that everybody loves. and They love him so much in Chicago, they're building a temple of love and fealty to him at cost, uh, exorbitant cost to taxpayers. And this administration weaponized the intelligence service to go after a political enemy. And, if, and it's, to me, the most important story, one of the most important stories of our time, but if he keeps talking, tweeting, Donald Trump gives the opposition excuse to di- direct people away from him. Oh, I didn't say I liked it. I just said <laughs> I, 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 there's nothing we can do about it. And as you mentioned, it is really good for content. You know, he's always generating content for everybody. Um, I, there are probably some subjects like the one you mentioned that it would be nice if he steered away from. I'm constantly frightened that he's going to tweet something about really delicate negotiations that are going on either with Putin or with China or with Israel or, you know, uh, most, most recently uh, the Taliban, you know, who knows what's going on in there, but that can be blown up if he talks about it. So, yeah, it, it makes me nervous sometimes, but at the same time, again, I just go back to it. It's, we got exactly what we voted for. I mean, he, he was no different during the campaign in 2015 and 16 than he is now. He did not change a bit once he took office. So can anybody really say they're surprised? Yeah, no, I, I I was one of those people when he was elected, though, in that little transition period before November to January, I thought in this time, he's going to get he's going to get cleaned up. He's going to get all those messaging people on him and he's going to change his hair and he's going to get off Twitter and how wrong I was. I mean, this is his way of communicating with his base. And he is just, even if he loses, even if he loses someone like Bill Barr, who's been competent and uh, one of the people who I think still is around the administration, not chased off, who is professional and, um, but, he, but he's just not going to do it. Before we, before we jump off the phone with you, today there was this breaking story um, in Popular Mechanics that you have been following that deals with the government and UFOs. And and people are going to think this is, now I've jumped off the deep end. But this is legitimate. So tell us what the story is that uh, is on your Twitter. You tweeted it out, at Jazz Shaw. What's going on here? Yeah, this is the story that uh, New York Times brought back in December of 2017 uh, when three videos wound up being released of strange objects, one of which 
gets referred to very frequently as the Tic Tac uh, in an encounter with the USS Nimitz uh, aircraft carrier battle group and another encounter about 10 years later with the Roosevelt battle group. And they saw these weird wild things that were flying and doing incredible stuff. So reporters started asking the Pentagon questions. And the Pentagon has changed their story no less than three times about this secret ATIP program that the, that the Pentagon had brought in at the request of Harry Reid, where they were actually studying and investigating UFOs. And they came out and said, yes, we were, uh, gave a few details, and then tried to shut up about it. And the more questions were asked, Pentagon spokespeople came out and said, well, there was a program, but it wasn't really investigating UFOs. It was investigating something else. And oh, there's also this guy that used to work on the program, Lou Elizondo. And they came out and for some reason said, uh, we did have the program, but Mr. Elizondo had no duties or wasn't assigned to that. He wasn't involved. Everything about him screamed. He was the UFO guy in the Pentagon. You know? Jez Shaw, <laughs> no. thank you very much for being here on the Dan Prop Show. Thank you for having me and happy Valentine's Thanks for enduring it. John Kess, Chris and McQuarrie, we're filling in for Dan Prof. It's Valentine's Day on the Dan Prof. Called the heap, H E E M P is what I use in the column to phonetically describe the sound of a man uh, who thought himself normal, but when he watches Julia Roberts say that, starts weeping uncontrollably. Oh, it's called a heap when it's heap, done by like a man. When you're trying to H E E M P, I just made this up. Oh, okay. It's not like I'm not like Thomas Friedman of the New York Times. I'm actually telling you, I just made it up. Because it sounds like a guy trying to stifle a cry. What is the movie that has made you cry the hardest in your? Besides the, um, besides the uh, old Yeller and Rudy. Beaches, come on, that's still. I'm sorry, I, you know I've okay, never seen Okay, you don't like it. Bette Midler. Oh, okay, but I do. Seen. I do write the column in a diner, and it, they play the, like a light, you know, light, love songs on the on the. So I know that after I have my pea soup and my patty milk and I'm sitting down to write, around 1 o'clock, that same song comes up, that you are the wing, wind between. Oh, you are the I wind. I almost said between. Whoa, my God, whoa, sorry. whoa, whoa, whoa. Sorry. It's a family show. Yes. The wind beneath my wings. So yes. John Cass and Kristen McQuarrie here for Dan Prof on this Valentine's Day. Have you settled on a movie you're going to watch with your Hubby? No, you know, we didn't really catch up on all the Oscar movies, so um, 
What's the best picture that we're supposed to watch? That's probably not a good oh, Valentine. No, you don't I, watch that? Like, okay, like I haven't seen that. What is it called? Uh, centipede know. or something? Whatever it's know. called. We need to take our memory medication, clearly, because that just happened. But no, what do you think is the most romantic movie lines? You played the one from Notting Hill. What else? Or most romantic movies? Smithy. Oh, Smithy. From That's me as Greer Garson and Random Harvest with Ronald Coleman. That's that's my go-to. You want your wife to cry and be happy and a happy cry, and you're not watching Love It or List It on HGTV because that makes me cry. Anytime I, she watches those shows, it's going to cost me money. Um, then you start but, to little, get a little teary. Yeah, then I just what about get, an affair to remember? If you can paint, I can walk. God, that gets me every time. I can't, That's oh. just a little too. It's a little too, yeah. Isn't it, though? It's kind of cliche, right? Deborah Kerr, though, what a lady. Oh, What a great lady. Yeah, that's a great scene. One of my favorite scenes of any movie I've ever watched is that one. And also Castaway, when he comes back and they, and they run out to the car together and you think that they're going to reunite, Tom Hanks and Helen Hunt. Yeah. And then he says, you have to go back inside, don't you? And she or says, yeah. how about this Rocky when he's in the 14th round and his eyes are closed and he turns to his friend and says, cut me, Mick, cut me. Oh, man. This is John Cass and Kristen McQuarrie filling in for Dan Proft on the Dan Proft Show. Happy Valentine's Day, everyone. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.